If somebody came to you and asked you, hey, what makes a great church? How would you answer that question? I want you to think about what, what makes a great church? I hear folks from our church often say, man, I love our church. I love our church. And oftentimes I ask the question, well, why? What, what makes you love our church so much? What makes a great church? A lot of people would think, well, 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 maybe, but you know, if I'm looking for a good church, I'm going to look at the preaching. Absolutely, you need to look at the preaching. We've had friends that have 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 moved away, and they 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 call me and say, "Hey, we're looking for a good church." And I said, "Start with the preaching. Do they preach the Bible? Do they open the Bible, read the Bible to you, and study the Bible?" I say that is important, but that doesn't make a good church. A lot of people think, well, well, a good church is based on the preacher. Is, is he funny? Is he entertaining? Does he preach too short? Does he preach too long? All of those things. Is this, what about his personality, his communication skills? Here's the thing. You can go on the internet and find a whole lot better preaching than you will hear this morning. I promise you. But preaching and the preacher does not make a good church. What, what about music? Well, they got great music at our church. And, and I would say I love the music. And this morning was, was amazing. I, I could hear voices raised and singing glory to the Lord. It, it is, those are components. But I, wouldn't, I would argue that it's not music that makes a great church. So many people determine a good church based on the music. Now, I, I would say that bad music can hurt a church experience. And so can bad preaching. I think we should have God-exalting music, but that doesn't make a good church. What about their, their different ministries? Man, they got a great kids' ministry or women's ministry and men's ministry. Man, they do a lot of things missional. That, that, those are good things, but tell, I, I'm telling you, those don't make a good church. They don't make a great church because we can do all of those things and still not be a great church. They don't make a great church. Because oftentimes I think we have a wrong idea of what church is. So we have to be clear that the church is a people. A people redeemed by Christ through faith in His death, burial, and resurrection. Do you know what makes a great church? Christ. And a people sold out to Christ people that know that what they deserve is God's condemnation, but what they have received through faith is redemption and reconciliation to a holy God. That is what makes a great church. A great church is one that has deep love for the Lord. It has a deep love for the truth and a deep love for people. That's what makes a great church. Notice I didn't say a perfect church, because that doesn't exist. It does not exist. If you want to find flaws in a church, you don't have to look very far. Even here, you don't have to look very far to find what you're looking for. What makes a great church are redeemed believers united together and committed to love Jesus, to love His truth, and to love people. But why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Because of Jesus. Just what Brett read about this morning. 
Because Jesus loved us so very much. So very much. That saw us in our wretchedness and our brokenness. He humbled Himself to be born, not as a human, but as a baby, to come and take upon the sins of all of those who put their faith in Him. Because of Christ, we, it's a people knowing what they deserve, but knowing and embracing what they have in Christ. That is the church. You can amen that if you would like. Barbara, where are you at? There's my, thank you. Preacher's wife. i got to call on her. You think about this. That is what makes an amazing church that sees Christ and cherishes Jesus and holds to His truth and loves people with the truth and wants others to embrace the truth because of Christ. The church is Christ's bride. It's His bride. Think about this. Husbands, think about how you love your wife. It pales in comparison to how Jesus loves the church. His bride. We are to commit to the church because Jesus is committed to the church. We're to love the church and be the church because Jesus is deeply committed to His bride. As we look at our six verses this morning... I read through here and I'm going, there's such good things in here. It seems a little bit ambiguous, but, but there's such good things that we can glean from this. As we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see a life committed to these things because, because he knows and understands that he is part of the church and what it cost to accomplish him being a part of the church. Christian, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Think about the cost God paid for you to be the church. Cost him his son. The ridicule and shame. It cost him his son for you to be the church. And Paul knows this. This is why he sold out for it. He travels and and he's on his third, right? When we come here, there portion in Acts here, he's on his third missionary journey to just do that, to, to share what Christ has done. He goes to hard places as he meets great opposition, yet he is patient. You notice how Paul is patient? He never wavers from God's truth and he loves people. I like to look at the Apostle Paul as the OG church planter. I'm a church planter. And the Apostle Paul, he is like the original church planter. He is, he is the guy that traveled around. And I want to plant churches here because these communities need the truth. They need, they need redeemed people planting the gospel there. He is this OG of church planters. He knows that Jesus gave himself to redeem him. And he knows that Jesus gave himself to redeem others. And he knows his calling is to share that truth. truth. And he wants to see healthy churches to make healthy communities. And the only way that is done is that believers commit to the bride of Christ. The church. And we have to be careful. I want you to understand that I'm not talking about a place or a name or anything like that. I'm talking about the church, God's people, redeemed people. God's people, they commit to loving Jesus. They love His truth and they love people. And this is no easy task. 
I want to pull a few things out of our passage, just six verses in Acts chapter 20 today. If you've got your Bibles open, I encourage you to follow along here. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one close to you. I want you to keep it. It's yours. It's yours to keep. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to do the best I can with these names. Okay? After, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, uh, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after, after the days of the unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God just to bless our time this morning. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning. Father, and I, I pray that, that you would help us in praising you this morning. Father, my prayer has been all week long that you would just remind us of, of what you have done to build your church, your kingdom here. Father, help us to know this and be reminded of this. And Father, my prayer too is that there are those here that, that don't yet know you, that you would call them to yourself today, that you would make them your own, that you would make them your children, that you would bring them into your people, the church. And Father, my prayer is that we would rejoice in that. But God, we need your help. We need your help in being who you've called us to be. So, Father, would you teach us this morning through your word? I pray that your words are spoken and not mine. God, we need you. I need you this morning. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. Amen and amen. So what makes a great church? There's a few things that I see here in our passage that, that we can follow the Apostle Paul's example here. And the first one is this, is I think a great church is one with genuine affection for one another. They have genuine affection. Our text says that the uproar had ceased. If you guys remember last week, there was this silversmith guy, this guy named Demetrius. He was causing a lot of problems for Apostle Paul in Ephesus. He had this, almost had a, a riot because uh, Paul was hurting their business. There was this big uproar and it had ceased there. Paul was sharing the gospel and God, God faithfully calmed those things. This was not an easy thing for Paul to do. He kind of hung around there. But the easy thing for Paul to do would just be say, you know what, it's, it's pretty rough here. These folks don't want me here. This, this, this guy Demetrius, he's causing me problems. I, I think I'm just going to leave. I'm going to get out of here. This is hard ground. Very difficult. But he didn't. That would have been the easy thing to do. He could have found an easier place. That's not how... Paul operated, is it? He went to hard places and he stood firm in the truth because he genuinely loved the people in these churches and in these cities and in these communities. I love that our text says that he called his disciples to him and encouraged them. He says it twice. 
We see this in the next verse. He says, he goes, when he goes through Macedonia and Achaia, he calls them to him and he encourages them. The Greek word used here is parakaleo. Here's what that means. What that really means is, is calling your loved ones close. It's like, like when my daughter came home this past week from college, way over there at CSU. When she walked in the door, I, I, it was like that. I was like, I parakaleoed her. I like I grabbed her and I said, I'm so glad you're here. I called her near, called her close. You think about how we do that. This is what Paul does. He's, you guys come here. Come close to me. I want to be near you. I just, I need your presence. I want to encourage you that way. This is what Paul does. It means to draw near or come close and to build up. It is, is an affectionate term that Paul uses here. It means to admonish and encourage. Paul knew that that he set out, when he set out for Jerusalem, he would probably never see these brothers and sisters again. He knew that. And he wanted to encourage them. He drew them near and he showed his affection for them. This is kind of how Paul does. Anyway, if you read his, his letters in Scripture here, we, we see his love just pour out. For these churches, you read any of these letters, Paul always opens for his deep love for people. His deep love. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Listen to what he says here. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Listen to what he says. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's another example in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He says, We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. You know what Paul says? You know what he's saying? He says, Hey, I love you. Why do you think I tell you that I love you all the time? I, I love you. I love all of you. If it's your first Sunday here, I want you to know that I love you. I care for you. Deeply. This is the way Christians should operate. It should not be a weird thing to say, hey, I love you. It shouldn't be. But so often I think that it is. We see here Paul deeply loved these churches. And it wasn't just, hey, I love you, hey. Paul loved them and through hard things. You take, the, take the church at Corinth. I mean, he had to write to them twice in Scripture. I mean, they did some weird stuff. He wrote to them uh, about this, it, it, the letters where there is deep affection, but he lovingly confronts them. He confronts this church of Corinth because of sin that had made its way in there. There were divisions and sinful practices. And Paul lovingly confronted them. He told them, say, I'm telling you this because I love you. Don't do those things. Remember the truth. Put those things out. Don't have divisions among you. You need to work those things out. And he encourages and he calls those things out. But he does it in a lovingly, loving way. Here's what he could have done. He could have said, can you believe what those Corinthians are doing? Oh, oh my goodness. I told them. 
I told them, look at them. That's what he could have said, but he doesn't. He loves them deeply. Loves them deeply. He didn't see them solely as just some messed up people needing a beat down. He didn't say, I told you so. He loved them with the truth. He did not look upon them with disgust and dissatisfaction. He saw them as people whom Jesus loved and gave his life for. He saw them as the bride of Christ. Christ's own flesh. And Paul looked at him and he says, if Jesus loved them, I'm going to love them. Despite their messiness, I'm going to love them. Here's the thing, church. If we say we, we love Jesus, we have to love the church. We have to love the church. If we say that we love Christ and we know Christ, we have to love the bride of Christ. It's flesh of His flesh. So often, here's what we find. So often, people love their idea of church rather than loving the church that God has given them. And that's sinful. People love the idea of what they've got in their mind of what a perfect church should be. And when it doesn't play out that way, they're disappointed. Here's what this means. It means loving the people despite their and your messiness and quirks and immaturity. We love them. doesn't mean that we compromise truth in any way, but we love the people that Christ has redeemed and brought us together with. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you. How well do you know and love the people you call your church? How well do you know them? Do you know the struggles? Do you know the things that they wrestle with? Do you know the things that bring them joy? How are you encouraging them? How are you being encouraged? Do they know your struggles? How well are you willing to be loved by the people of your church? Man, that's a life group question there, isn't it? Brett, you writing that one down? Great church, a good church, a healthy church is one that has deep affections for one another, has a deep affection for Christ, and has deep affections for one another. And we see this in the Apostle Paul. He loved people well. Here's another thing that we see here. A great church is willing to endure after three months in Achaia, Paul is continuing on his journey. His intentions were to sail on a, on a ship from Corinth to Palestine for the Passover. Paul got wind of some old boys trying to kill him again. These are his fellow Jews. They're plotting to kill him. He's formed by some Jews in Corinth and and being on a small boat, it had been real easy for them to kill the Apostle Paul. He'd been an easy target for mur murder then. So Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't just say, you know what? It's not worth it. I give up. I'm just going to find me a little place and settle down. 
not worry about all this. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know what he does? He finds another way. Instead of taking the easy route by ship, he goes by foot for a long way. Went by land through Macedonia, and he later he caught a ship to Israel. But this is the norm for the Apostle Paul, because he didn't give up. He knew the love of Jesus, and he loved the church, he loved God's people, and he endured and was persistent. This is kind of the way Paul rode, rolled, though. Look at, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. You're talking about a guy that had it bad, had it rough, but didn't give up. Listen to what he says here. He kind of gives an account of a summary of his sufferings to be a church planter. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Not one, five times. L- let me tell you what that is. That he was beaten with a whip that was designed to tear flesh off of him, not once, but five times. He had 39 times. Not once, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. They took sticks and they beat him with sticks three times. Once I was stoned. Oh, and they thought he was dead. You know what he did then? They drug him out of the stone, him, drug him out of the city. You know what he did? He came to and he went back into the city. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure. And look at verse 28. He says, if you think that's not bad, this is what, this was at the heart of Paul. This was his greatest struggle. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of, of my anxiety for all the churches. God had broken Paul's heart for people. And Paul looked at the things that he endured and he goes, worth it. Why was it worth it? Because he looked upon what Christ had done for him, and he goes, this is nothing, nothing compared to what Christ endured for me. I love that he says this, that verse 28. He says, far above his own physical suffering, Paul's concern was for churches. And when I say churches, I mean believers. They were facing trials from outside and inside the church. They were being persecuted by the world. And and Paul had a deep desire to encourage them and persevere and endure to stand firm in the faith against the things outside the church. Paul was so concerned that that evil practices were creeping into these churches that he he wrote to them and he visited them and he encouraged them and and he stood up to them and he, he, he told them and hold to the truth. I can imagine the Apostle Paul just lying in anguish at night, just praying over these brothers and sisters. Paul also had a deep concern for enduring the struggles within the church. Remember 1st and 2nd Corinthians when he writes to them? They're being bombarded by false teachers and these pagan practices, and Paul encouraged them to endure that as well. 
Things are creeping in. Just stand firm. I love what he tells Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, listen to what he tells his brother Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. As, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I think one of the, the most encouraging things in that passage right there is Paul says, do it with complete patience. So often we're not patient, are we? We get impatient. Why can't they get it? Why are they doing this? Or why are they doing that? Or why can't they understand? Paul says, hey, Timothy, just be patient. Keep teaching. Be steadfast. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Do those things. So often we are unwilling to endure anything. We're a society that lacks commitment and, and endurance in anything. This is what our, 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 our culture teaches us. When things get tough, the norm in today's time is, is to do one of three things. We just ignore it altogether. We just play like it, it doesn't even happen. It's not even there. Or we attack that person. Or we just bail. I don't like what they're doing. I'm out of here. It's not what God calls us to. God calls us to commit to one another and endure. We see this over and over in Scripture that God calls us to endure these things. Be patient with one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. And this doesn't mean that we simply roll over. But it does call us to be patient. We're to be patient. Instead of being overwhelmed by our dissatisfaction of others who are lost in sin, or maybe they're just delving into sin, maybe they're our brothers and sisters and, and they're in sin, instead of gossiping or condemning them, what if, what if, even if they're lost, what if, what if we mourned their disobedience? What if it just broke us? What if we hurt for them? When was the last time you wept over someone else's sin? We don't like to do that. What if, what if we were willing to engage more with others, especially inside the church? What if? What if, if these things drove us to love people more? We should be very quick to forgive others because Jesus is quick to forgive us. We should be willing to look past the flaws of others and, and desire holiness, not only in ourselves, but desire holiness in others. 
Are we willing to endure the things to bring about holiness in our families and our friends and our neighbors and in our church? Are we patient? Allowing the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives, but being persistent and just piling truth and loving people? Are we willing to endure those things? It takes commitment and it takes endurance. It, this requires more than some superficial relationship with those inside and outside the church. When was the last time we were actually honest with one another? I had a great conversation with a brother this, this past week over a cup of coffee, and I was reminded of this. We're talking about just struggles that people have, and oftentimes we don't know. We don't know. I don't know what you're struggling with. I know what some of you are struggling with and know that I, I struggle with you. But, but think about this. How often do we hide those things? Going, man, I'm really wrestling with this, or I'm, I've been stressed out about this, or this relationship is bad, or my job, I'm struggling here. How often do the people that you call your eternal brothers and sisters know those things? Because, because here's the thing that we were talking about this, and this was, this was something we came, I came to realize is that when we, we pretend that those things don't, don't exist and, and we walk in, especially in our worship gathering, and we put on a, a fake smile and go, hey, my week has been great when it's been complete garbage. You know what we were doing? That, I believe that is absolutely sinful because what we're trying to do is convince ourselves is that I have control of the joy in my life, and that belongs to Christ. When we try to convince ourselves that I will be okay in and of myself, that's sinful. Instead of being honest with ourselves and, and honest with Jesus and laying those things at Christ's feet and being honest with our brothers and sisters who God has given us, I mean, look around. These brothers and sisters are, are people that is a gift from God to you. Your brothers, your sisters are a gift from God to endure, to seek holiness, to strive for these things together, to labor together, to share these burdens together. And I think we do the gospel and the bride of Christ, a great injustice when we put on a fake smile on a Sunday morning. And we go, I'm good. When we're not. Here's what it requires. It requires us to be vulnerable. And to share our weaknesses. But it also requires us to seek holiness together. And here's, here's what I've seen. When we do that, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that God has given us. When we do those things, when we carry our burdens together, it's a beautiful thing. Here's the last thing. A great church is one that labors together. They labor together. They're in this together. Paul didn't, he didn't travel alone. He was accompanied, these guys that are 
have names that are really hard to say. There's Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus. And, and, and Luke was even there. Luke is the author of, of Acts. And, and you can see in there what he says in, in verse 6, but we sailed. This is Luke speaking there in the first person. Indicated they, they, they were together. These guys were from the Roman. These guys, these guys that accompanied Paul, they were from these Roman, Roman provinces where, he had, where Paul had ministered. And, and he planted churches in a lot of these places. And then they were more than likely representatives of their churches. They're coming and traveling along with Paul because they wanted to see the gospel go out. And they were doing this together. They, and they had taken up collection from their churches at, and, and, and was bringing this for a gift, an offering for the church at Jerusalem that needed support there. And here's the point. The point being that it was, it was not the Apostle Paul show. It's Christ. And Christ alone. It wasn't the Apostle Paul show. It's the bride of Christ. The church coming together. Committed to love and care and support one another. To make Jesus non-ignorable. Not only, your only, not only in their own hometowns, but to the ends of the earth. You see how they're laboring together? We see this all throughout the early church where they rallied the resources that God had given them to build His kingdom. They rallied these things. They gave and they served and, and they went and they shared. They did these things together. This is the church coming together, laboring together to grow the kingdom of God. This is a beautiful thing. They served. They went to places to share the gospel. They gave sacrificially of their finances to the ministry. Here these believers were giving to help the church of Jerusalem to equip this church to do ministry and share the gospel there. They saw it important because there were people that God had redeemed that needed to know the gospel. And here's the thing, church. This is, this is something that we have to understand. God perfectly orchestrated and designed the church to be a team sport. Nobody rides the bench. And so often, I think, we get real comfortable riding the bench. God doesn't design the church to, for there even to be a bench. We don't ride the bench. We, we labor together. There's no one-man show. God has designed the church to carry out the mission of the church, and no one is supposed to ride the bench. We all have a part in this. We all do things together. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans, Romans 12, verses 4-8. through eight. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. What he's saying is not everybody does the same thing. God didn't gift everybody with... The same gifts, he's, he spread them out. Listen to what he says there. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let, let us use them. Hear me, Christian. Listen to what Paul says. God's given you a gift. You better use it. This is what he's saying. This is a redneck translation. God gave you a gift. You better use it. He says, let him use it. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, 
The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's the thing. I've been a part of several churches where this was not the case. You ever heard the the saying where 20% do 80% of the work in churches? Why is that? That should not be. And I don't think that's the way it is here. But that's the common saying, right? I've even heard it say, well, 10% do 90%. I've been a part of those churches before. The churches where just a few gave, a few contributed, very few served. These churches are made of consumers and And the few that give and serve, they're worn out, they're exhausted, they're frustrated. But I've also been a part of churches where, great churches, where the body works together to carry out the mission of the church. And man, it's an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing. It's a beautiful thing. This is what I love about our church. There's so many things that go on that I never even know about. And when I hear about them, I go, I didn't even know that was going on. Praise God for that. Every now and then I get wind where maybe a group of two or three believers are meeting together to disciple one another. Or you get some rogue life group that goes and does a mission project that serves 6-8. Yes! Or you see where a group of believers get together and they care for a family in need. They just do it on their own. They're like, this is what we're supposed to do. This is the norm for us. They reach out to unbelievers and they share the gospel with them. I love these things. I, I love hearing about these things where believers are going out and they're giving and they're serving and they're caring and they're using the gifts that God has given them. It's a beautiful thing. And God uses them in mighty ways for His glory and their joy. This is what I see so much of when when churches engage in that, when the people of God engage in those things, joy abounds. It's an amazing thing. Joy abounds. God works in churches such as this to do and show them the things that they never could have imagined before. It's these churches, groups of believers that are sold out to the gospel because they know what Christ has done for them. They know the cost. They know the cost of what it cost them to be a believer in Christ, to be called the church. They love Jesus. They love the truth of God. And they love others because nothing, nothing has the eternal impact like being the church. Nothing. It's a beautiful thing. I want you to think for just a moment, if we can, if you can just entertain me for just a moment. Maybe you just sit and close your eyes for just a second. I want you to, if you are a believer here this morning, if your hope and trust is in Christ, I want you to consider what Christ has done to make that happen. You are born again You're a new creation. 
Hell is not a reality for you anymore. Eternal glory is yours. And I want you to think about what it costs for, for, for you to be that, to be the bride of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the weight of your sin. I want you to know this morning that you have offended a holy and righteous God. The creator of all things that is perfectly right and just because of your sin. It may be your lying, your lust, your stealing, whatever it may be. That you have, you have offended a holy and righteous God that has created you and made you for His glory. And what you deserve is His eternal wrath. What the Bible tells us is weeping and gnashing of teeth never cease. This is what you deserve. But I want you to know this. God loves you so very much. So much that, that He came. Christ, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Christ came to take the punishment that you deserve. To take it away, to absorb it, this propitiation that Brett talked about, to be the covering, to take it for you. And all he asks is that you trust in him, that you submit to his good and loving authority, that you see him as the treasure of your life, that you trust in him, that you turn away from those things that have drawn you away from him, and that you turn to him and trust in him. This is my plea to you this morning, that you put your hope and faith in Christ. And then you too consider, 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 think about the great weight of what it cost for you to be born again, to be the church. Because if you are the church, consider these words of Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering. And a sacrifice to God. I love our church. I love our church. I'm so thankful. For our church. And I firmly believe that God is building a great church here at Calvary Severance. A church where Jesus is king. A church where there is genuine affection for one another. And a church that is willing and does endure. The hard things. And my encouragement for us is let's keep going. Let's press into those, church, those things. And let's be a church that labors together for God's kingdom. As you leave here today, maybe over lunch, I, I want you to consider four questions. Here's the first one. It's on the bottom of your worship guide there. I want you to consider what Christ has done for you. What, what does commitment to Him look like for you? What does commitment to Christ look like for you? Here's the second one. Do your brothers and sisters in Christ know that you love them? Do they know it? Or do you just think they know it? Here's the third one. What does commitment to a body of believers look like for you? Is it superficial or is it deep and loving? And here's the last one. 
Are there areas that, that you should be contributing to the growth of God's kingdom? What are those areas? They go, you know what? God has called me. He's gifted me. And time and resources and talent that I could commit to God's growing God's kingdom. What are those areas? Maybe you have that discussion as a family over lunch today. Maybe you sit back and examine how can we rally the resources and time and talents that God has given us to grow His kingdom. God desires us to be a great church and I believe that we are on the right track to be a great church. But we need to have this ever in front of us because we are quick to forget. Quick to forget. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. That we can sing and we can pray. We can open your word and we can study it together. I thank you for this time, Lord. What a Thank you for what it does for my heart and my soul. What a precious gift the church is. And Father, help us to not take advantage or discard the preciousness of the gift. And Father, help us to consider what it cost for you to establish the church. And Father, help us to not forget that you are still building your church. And my prayer is that you have, you have built your church this morning. If, I pray that there are those that came in here lost and far from you. This chasm that we sang about this morning. I pray that they have seen the, the gravity of that chasm, but they also see the glory of, of what you do to bridge that gap. That you come and you redeem. And my prayer is that they have, have embraced you as Lord and Savior. And that you have welcomed them in the church. And I pray that we can rejoice in that this morning. So Father, help us to, to be who you've called us to be as a church. To love you deeply. To hold fast to your truth. And to love people well. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.